0: Either. Sometimes we say that ignorance is bliss, but we know that that's not always the case. In fact, sometimes ignorance is fatal. I like to say sometimes ignorance is blistering. And that certainly is the case when it comes to the things of God and the gospel and Jesus Christ. And that's really, if you want to boil it down, that was Israel's problem. They were ignorant about the things of God. And it led to them, even though they said they were believers, even though they thought they would have been saved from the the justice of God and His wrath, they actually were still under it because they were ignorant. And this kind of ignorance is fatal ignorance. And whether we're talking about Israel or or people who who are right here right now, we want to avoid this kind of spiritual ignorance that can be fatal, that can be blistering. Well, in Romans chapter 9, verses 30, down to chapter 10, verse 4, he's dealing with this issue of Israel's unbelief due to their ignorance. And so we're going to learn this morning about Israel's unbelief due to ignorance, but we're, we're doing so in a bigger perspective, even thinking about not just Israel, but thinking about ourselves and, and the world that we live in. Before we actually read this passage, I just want to say two things. First of all, you might be wondering why we're um, not starting in Romans 10, and we're going back into chapter 9. And, and that's because, remember, the chapter divisions are there for convenience. And um, most scholars would, would have us to know that the flow of the passage seems to start anew at chapter 9, verse 30. There's actually a joke. Someone said that when they were making the decisions about chapters, chapter divisions, it seems like sometimes they were riding on horseback. Um, you know, wherever you can make the pen touch the page and um, there's no science to that. But the idea is we've added them for our convenience. So we're going to go back to chapter 9, verse 30. Another thing to keep in mind is, is really what the, the central point is. Before we read it, look at chapter 10, verse 3. It's pretty commonly agreed that this is really the issue in all of these verses, where it says in chapter 10, verse 3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God. This whole section of verse is about ignorance, and it's about ignorance regarding God and his salvation. And so keep that in mind as we read these verses together, beginning in chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And we'll stop there. If you want to simplify those verses and and make them a little bit more digestible, what we'll do this morning is look at four occasions when ignorance is spiritually fatal four occasions when ignorance is spiritually fatal or where ignorance is blistering. And it has everything to do with ignorance of God. Look at verse 1 with me before we get to the first occasion. Just notice Paul's emotion, if you will, and, and his feelings for Israel where he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. It's important to even see that right away. He comes, after, he comes off of chapter 9, which is about sovereign grace. It has everything to do with God and His choosing. But that's not to be disconnected from human responsibility. It's not to be disconnected from prayer and, and passion. The first thing he does when he closes out that at last argument is he's praying for them. And he's praying for their salvation. And he's, he's desiring that with great, great passion. It's also worth noting in verse 1 that He wants them to be saved. Which implies what? It implies that they're not saved. They are still under the judgment of God. Not because they're atheists. Not because they're agnostics. But because they've not trusted in Christ. Even look at verse 2 where it says, I bear them witness. He's going to say, I acknowledge, I testify to the fact that they have a zeal for God. He's talking about the people who would say they love God and, and they love to serve God. and They're zealous and he says they're not saved. They're not saved and it has everything to do with ignorance. It has everything to do with ignorance. And so we're looking at this kind of ignorance that can be true of people, whether it's Israel or people that we know or even you. Ignorance about God that regardless of how zealous you might be for the things of God leaves you still under the judgment of God leaves you unsaved this is a very very important matter for us most of us here would say we have a desire for God that's why we're here and we, we live and breathe and have our being around other people who would say they have a desire to please God and more than likely Israel would outdo All of us in commitment, devotion, and zeal. And so for Paul to say about them, I pray for their salvation, should be a wake-up call to us. You can be zealous for God and still be under the condemnation of God because you don't understand God to begin with. That is a heavy, heavy reality that's very important. Which brings us to number one. Ignorance is fatal when it is ignorance of, number one, divine righteousness. Ignorance is fatal when it's ignorance of divine righteousness. This is the issue. At the end of verse 2, they have zeal, but not according to knowledge. So there's an ignorance. Look at verse 3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God. And we'll stop there for now. This is central to his whole argument. Their problem, their big problem... They're ignorant about righteousness. They're ignorant about righteousness. Why they rejected the gospel. Why has Israel by and large seen Jesus and all the things that he did and all the claims that he made and, and has chosen to say he's not our Savior. Here's why. They're ignorant about divine righteousness. This is ironic. (laughs) The Israelite could have quoted... Chapter after chapter after chapter, verse after verse after verse about God's righteousness. In fact, they even had a title for God, and the title was, The Righteous One, Isaiah 24. Many of them would have memorized the hundreds, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. There's almost 600 references to, to righteousness in the Bible. So let's just give them you know, two-thirds of that in the Old Testament. They would have known about the righteousness of God. They would have memorized passages about the righteousness of God. And the Apostle Paul says they're ignorant about the righteousness of God. And let's argue from the the greater to the lesser. If Israel is lost, they don't understand the cross, they don't understand the gospel because they don't understand the righteousness of God, even though in one sense they do because they've memorized all this data, how about you? How about evangelicalism? How about churchianity? Could, could you define the righteousness of God? See, for Israel, they don't understand the gospel because they don't understand the righteousness of God. Do you understand the righteousness of God? Could you explain the righteousness of God to me in just simple terms? When you tell people the gospel, do you say anything about the righteousness of God? Even if you don't use that word, do you say anything about the righteousness of God? He's saying here, they don't understand the gospel, they don't believe in Christ because they don't understand the righteousness of God. Apparently, it's essential that you understand something about the righteousness of God. If you were given the assignment, okay, you have one minute to write down what you believe about God, would you say anything, even if you just use synonyms about the righteousness of God? I know some of you would, but I know some of you wouldn't. And here, he's, he's tying their their rejection of the one true Christ to the fact that they're ignorant about the righteousness of God. He's putting the two hand in hand. Most of us know that, and most people you would talk to would know, that in the Bible, Romans is about the gospel. And that's, that's right. It's so true. It's about the gospel. But I checked chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, and I stop there. All 10 chapters talk about righteousness. Yes, it's a book about the gospel. But the gospel makes sense in Romans because of the making sense of the righteousness of God. And so to the degree that we need to, we need to get on board and not just say, oh yeah, Israel, they're a bunch of spiritual flunkies. Let's pray for their salvation. They don't even understand the gospel without first holding the mirror up and saying, do I understand the gospel? Because apparently wrapped up in understanding the good news of salvation in Christ is understanding the righteousness of God. Well, enough uh, prodding and poking and looking for conviction if it sticks. What is the righteousness of God? Let's make it as simple as we can. The word originally simply meant straight as opposed to crooked. It's a word used for a judge who is not crooked, doesn't do underhanded dealings, He is, here's the the synonym that's used, by the way, whether it's in Hebrew or Greek. Righteous, just. That's a synonym. It comes from the same word. It's the justice of God. How about another synonym? It's the fairness of God. Another synonym, it's the perfect justice of God. Or to put it in those terms, what we're talking about when we're talking about the justice of God is God has a standard. He has a law and He doesn't compromise. He's not one of those compromising judges. He doesn't raise the standard either to somehow be uh, sinister or to play a joke. Standard is here. And He doesn't change the standard. Think about this in relationship to Israel. They forgot this. God said, you'll have no other gods other than Me. They knew that. And yet, He was not the supreme object of their affection, even if they would have professed to be monotheists. So what's God going to do about it? If He has a perfect standard, He's going to do something about it. What about God saying to love me as God? This makes sense with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as an outflow, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a summary of the law. What happens when we don't do that? What happens when Israel doesn't do that? When the same God says, The wages of sin, we learned this in Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin, violating my righteous law, is death. See, Israel didn't get that. Just like sometimes we don't get that. God's perfect, inflexible, righteous standard doesn't change. It doesn't change. He's not a compromiser. He doesn't take religious bribes. What he says goes. And if we don't start there, I I guarantee you, and we'll get to to this, that doesn't make sense. It's no wonder that that people who you communicate the gospel to, if you don't communicate this righteous idea, think that doesn't even make sense to me. The gospel will not make sense to you if you don't have it clear in your mind that God has a righteous standard that he doesn't compromise on. And that was Israel's First problem, they had forgotten. They were ignorant about the righteousness of God. They thought somehow by doing other things, they could satisfy His righteous requirements when in fact, He was the one who says, when you sin, you'll die. And so, if I can, with all the pastoral affection I can muster, think about God in terms of perfection when you communicate the gospel to other people, even if you don't use the word righteous or righteousness, think in those terms, and then all of a sudden, things make sense. I'm not saying people will guarantee, uh, you'll see people converted necessarily, but at least you're having it make sense. It starts with righteousness. Israel was ignorant Blisteringly so, of the righteousness of God. That's why they didn't accept Christ. And we'll see why. By the way, for the sake of time I won't reference it, but just Romans 116 and 17 talk about the righteousness of God really being revealed in the gospel. That's one sixteen and seventeen. Romans 3.25, the, the cross was to show the righteousness of God. So you don't take my word for it. Read Romans looking for it. It's amazing. Let's move on to a second point. Ignorance is blistering or fatal when it's ignorance of number two, personal unrighteousness. Personal unrighteousness. And here's, this is so logical. I love the way he unpacks this. Look at verse 3 with me if you would again. So the first phase of, of ignorance that is tragic for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and, and there's always going to be this and by the way, this is of logical necessity where there is the first part of verse 3, you are going to have the second part and seeking to establish their own. We can stop there for now. That, that, that is going to happen. If you have a God who's compromised who's not absolutely righteous, you have a compromised God who compromises, it doesn't take very long for you to figure out that somehow you can pay Him. Somehow you you can give Him a bribe. You can do enough religious stuff to get Him to accept you. And that's what's happening with Israel. Maybe to memorize Torah enough to keep Sabbath or Shabbat, as they would call it today, or keeping the food laws, or going to temple, or whatever it might be. If we could just do these good things enough, He will accept us. Oh yes, we knew something about the fact that if you sin, you'll die. But you know what? We're, we're, we're seeing God not as absolutely righteous, so we're just going to pay Him enough with enough stuff. It'll be okay. And that's kind of how we think sometimes. You might even think that way. You underestimate God and then you overestimate self. If I can just be baptized and take communion and be confirmed and be pro-life and these are good things. But you've forgotten something. By necessity, when you forget that God is righteous and doesn't compromise, you It's just how it is. You forget that you are compromised. That you have a sin nature. He's expecting us to be able to remember what we read in Romans 1, 2, and 3, and 4, and 5, and 6, and 7, and 8. That we're sinners by nature. Read Romans 5. Or how about, not Romans 5 for now, but look look at Romans 3. After three chapters of arguing how everyone is sinful and there's... None who are actually righteous. This is so helpful to see Romans three ten. Still, this righteousness theme. Romans three ten says, "As it is written." So this was in Psalm fourteen as well. So in the Jewish scriptures as well, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Romans eight eight. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Nobody's righteous. So we have to remember that. It's fatal for us to think somehow we can do enough stuff to please God because somehow we have some righteousness in us. Can't. So much so that Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous deeds, quote unquote, right, are like a polluted garment. An unspeakable Filthy, polluted rag. All of our righteous deeds. See, when you, when you lower God and don't see Him as absolutely righteous, you think He will be pleased with your filthy garment. Righteousness! Righteousness! <coughs> and God, who is perfectly righteous, sees it as an insult. Because God has never asked for that. He's asked for perfection. Right? which is bad news for us. I know that. But you've got to understand the bad news if you're going to understand the good news. All of this is essential, apparently, if we're going to understand the cross. When you start thinking about how God is perfectly righteous and He has this perfect standard and He's not going to be a compromising God, it shouldn't motivate you to try to do better.
1: Oh, okay, then I need. To, I need to try harder.
0: It should devastate you. There was a young priest named Martin who went through this experience. And what did he do? He studied the Bible, and the more he studied the Bible, the more he saw. God is righteous, God is righteous, God is righteous, right? All the way Genesis to Revelation, literally, literally Genesis to Revelation. God is righteous, God is righteous, God is righteous. And his conclusion after coming to grips with that reality by the grace of God was not, I'm going to try harder. You know what his conclusion was? I hate you, God. And you might think, oh no, how impolite. He should have tried harder. And I say, in the the short run, it might have been a bad move for Martin Luther. But in the long run, that's, that's, that's a good thing. Because at least he knows who he's dealing with. He's dealing with a God who will never, ever, 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 ever accept his offerings. And his priestly duties are insults to this God, just like Isaiah says. And so he cried out in absolute desperation and frustration which set the table, right, to understand how he needed righteousness from somewhere else. It's a great, great story. It's a great, great account. Most people you know say they're going to heaven when they die. I know that because polls tell us that. By the way, we have one requirement for getting into heaven these days. It's a funeral, (laughs) which is very, very strange. If you die, you get to go to heaven. That's just kind of how it is. But all of that aside, most people say they're going to heaven. And when you ask them in a nice, kind, gentle way, what what do you base that, that conviction on? What do you base that belief on? many, many times, you know what the answer is. It's, I did this. I did that. I am a... Right? And what you could do thoughtfully and carefully is say, you know, the Bible actually uh, speaks to this. It's in Romans 10.3. In Romans 10.3, it says, Seeking to establish their own referring to righteousness. It's tragic. It's blistering when we try to establish our own righteousness. But it starts with not understanding God's righteousness. Underestimate God, which leads to overestimating self, which leads to no need for Christ. Maybe that's one reason why when you communicate the gospel to people, they don't even get it. It doesn't even make sense. It's got to be the backdrop first. Let's move to a third. Ignorance is blistering or fatal when it is ignorance of Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness, that's what we need. Back to verse 3. In one sense, we could just do verse 3 today. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that's where it starts. And seeking to establish their own, that's that's the logical next step. They did not submit to God's righteousness. That at first doesn't make a lot of sense. But if we keep reading, we see what he means by what he says. In verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And you say, yeah, now we're on to something. We're talking about Christ's righteousness, right? They did not submit to God's righteousness. Well, what is meant by that? It's, it, it's verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now we're talking about hope. Now we're talking about the, the clear vision of Christ because now we know that we desperately need righteousness that is not ours. It's awesome the way he even says that when he says it in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. He's talking about uh, culmination. He's talking about climax. He's talking about fulfillment. God's plan all along throughout the Old Testament laws and scriptures ultimately would be to have this one who would keep them, would be this one who would save his people from their sins, Matthew 1, who would be this great savior. He's the high point. He's the culminating point in all of it. See, the fact of the matter is God isn't going to flex on His righteousness and you have no righteousness to offer. And so now, naturally, you're desperate. You need righteousness from somewhere else. And God's plan from the very beginning and culmination of that plan is to have Christ live for us, die for us, and rise again for us. Christ is the end of the law, the fulfillment of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. You see, that's why. We read read the account in Mark today, but actually the fuller account is in Matthew. At Jesus' baptism, he explains why he's being baptized. To fulfill all righteousness. Jesus didn't need to be baptized with John's baptism. In one sense, what was he thinking? Everybody else did to to say, yes, I'm here to confess my sins, and I'm here to be ready for coming Messiah. And Jesus shows up. Why, Jesus? You have no sins to confess, to fulfill all righteousness. You see, he's identifying with us as sinners even at that point in time. How about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 when Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. I came to to do everything that was desired of God or required of God, I should say. He is our righteousness. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans 3 because we've seen all of this before. This is just applying what he's already taught in Romans specifically to religious people who reject Christ. Romans 3 is awesome as a cross-reference to what we're looking at in Romans 10 when it comes to Christ's righteousness. The, one of my favorite passages, because it's crucial to us, Romans three twenty five and 26. And you ready for this? This is getting a sip of water out of a fire hydrant. I mean, this is gospel explosion. Look what it says in verse 25. Whom God put forward, speaking of Christ, because it says as a propitiation, as as a satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. Why did he go to the cross? Lots of reasons, but one was to show God's inflexible righteousness. He didn't say, ah, forget about it. Let bygones be bygones. He pours his wrath out on his son to for the purpose of showing his righteousness. He's not a compromising God. Keep reading then, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness, to put it on display at the present time. And I love this, so that he might be just. You can translate that with a synonym. Righteous. It's the same word. So that he might be just, so that he might be righteous, straight, not crooked, not a compromiser, and the justifier, or literally the one who declares righteous of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's where it's all coming together. The God is righteous. He doesn't flex his righteousness, so then we have a problem. We could never be saved. It's true. Unless there is a substitute who comes, who lives perfectly, and then dies to absorb the wrath of God where God pours out His righteous wrath. So that God can be the just, right? The righteous, not the compromised pseudo-deity. And because of His love, right? And sending His Son to do His perfect work. The just and the justifier. The one who declares perfect, declares sinners perfect based upon the merits of Christ, based upon the righteousness of Christ. This just doesn't get any better. If I were an unbeliever, I would be upset with the logic. (laughs) It's too good. But to be ignorant of these things is to have the Apostle Paul and those, those like him still praying for your salvation. Because we're missing the righteousness of God, overestimating ourselves in our unrighteousness, and totally missing the substitutionary atonement of Christ, which provides righteousness for us in justification. Is what it does. Pretty theological, huh? Just as a reminder, this is church. <laughs> it's kind of the, kind of the idea. Um, there's, uh, anyhow, I'll bite my tongue. <laughs> it doesn't get any better than this. The communication of it could be better from a better preacher, but these facts don't get any better. They just don't get any better. It overshadows, it eclipses everything else on planet earth. That sinners like you and like me can be reconciled to God. That I can stand before God and to have God see me as perfect because that's what He requires. Even though He knows and I know that I'm a big fat sinner. Why? How? How does that happen? Well, God doesn't say, eh, forget about it. By the way, if God could say, ah, oh, forget about it, He wouldn't be God. The angels wouldn't worship Him. And none of this would make any sense. This is masterful. And all of this is behind the gospel. It is the gospel. Romans is gospel. Romans is righteousness. To to see Christ in His life and death and resurrection and to say... I don't believe in Him. It's probably traced back to the fact that you don't believe in the righteousness of God and and you don't believe in in your own sinfulness and lack of righteousness. But think about this. The Father says from heaven in the full account of the Gospel account, He says, Behold, listen, this is My Son in whom I am well pleased. By the way, because of sin, he, He doesn't say that about anybody else. It's because He's the perfect righteous one. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. For me to not believe in Christ is to say, I don't believe I will. I'll do it myself. More religious duty, more religious duty, more religious duty. It's not good. If that's the case, you need to pray for my salvation. Like Paul would. Sadly, Israel did this very thing, by and large. Many people do it today, by and large. Look with me, if you would, back at chapter 9, verses 32 and 33. We didn't start there because the punchline really is in verse 3 of chapter 10, but all of this is related. And so back at chapter 9, verse 32, it says, They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Verse 33, as it is written, quoting Isaiah 28, 16, Behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. It's so interesting that God, God gives His Son as a rock, and you're going to cling to the rock for righteousness amidst everything, or that rock is going to be your problem, and you're going to stumble over the rock. And by divine design, God says, here it is, my son, the rock. And so some cling to the rock for righteousness and others can't get past the rock. Why would that be? Why, why do you think that, that people would be offended by Christ? It says he's a rock of offense. Peter quotes it as well. Why would he, what, what would be so offensive about Christ? Well, it doesn't take very long to th- figure that out if you read the gospel accounts. You know, Jesus shows up and and says, I didn't come for those who are healthy, but for those who are sick. Obviously speaking about spiritual sickness. Well, I don't like the sound of that very much. I don't really want to admit that I'm spiritually sick. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Well, I don't like the sound of that. That means... I have to admit that I'm broken. John the Baptist ends up being a good example by saying, I must decrease. He must increase. Hmm. That's a problem. Or how about Jesus, as we'll even see uh, in this account, Jesus coming not just for the Jewish people, but for Gentiles too. Oh, he's coming for the people I don't like and look down on and crack jokes about. The unclean. I, I kind of have a problem with his Jesus. Romans six, or Romans five six. He, he came for the, the spiritually helpless. I don't think I, I don't think I'm going to say that I'm spiritually helpless. I've got high 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 self esteem. I'm not going to do that. I believe in myself. You see. Apart from the grace of God intervening, apart from the grace of God intervening, we're, we're, we're going to see Christ not as this rock to grab onto for safety and security and His righteousness. We're going to see it as a stumbling block and say, I ain't going there. We do see something of God's sovereignty here again. By design, He did it this way. This reminds me of Psalm chapter 2, which we won't take the time to go to, but it talks about kiss the sun, embrace the sun, worship the sun. That's where the refuge is because it goes on to say, lest He become angry and you perish in the way. See, the very one who provides safety and salvation is also the one who, by divine design, executes judgment. Acts chapter 17, Paul talks about that. You kiss the Son for safety, or there is judgment by the Son. Israel rejected Christ by and large. Trace it back to underestimating God, overestimating self, which means you're never going to make any sense of the cross. Let's end with this. Number four, ignorance is blistering when it is ignorance of receiving righteousness. Ignorance of receiving righteousness. If you want to abbreviate that, it's just ignorance about faith, ignorance about application of Christ's work. Here's the question before we read the verses. Okay. Christ, 2,000 years ago, historic person, real life, lived a perfectly righteous life, fulfilled the law in every sense necessary, went to the cross even as part of fulfilling the law, rose again from the dead. The big question then is, how do I receive benefit myself? Is it by nature of the fact that I'm part of the human race that, that it benefits me? Is it by the nature of the fact that I'm an American? Is it by nature of the fact that, that I have Christian parents or grandparents or... Or what is it? And again, you have Jews that are so strong on, you know, I know I'm in the covenant covenant because my last name is Davidson. Son of David. Lineage. Line. We kind of think that way sometimes. My great-great-granddad was a preacher, you know, or whatever. Heritage. The answer is we receive it by faith. And only by faith. Look at verse 4 of chapter 10. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, trusts, has faith in. Those are all synonyms. And then chapter 9, verse 30 to 33, it's the same thing emphasized over and over again. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, by trust. It's not their righteousness. They're trusting in God for righteousness. A righteousness that is not their own. Then verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Or verse 33, at the end, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. But it's whoever believes in Him. And so it is true that you must believe in Christ, you must trust in Christ, you must depend upon Christ to actually have it gain personal benefit to you, and the Bible emphasizes this over and over and over and over again. It's not automatic and remember, in one sense, faith is nothing okay you you can't measure faith faith is nothing, faith is trust, it is dependence it it, it is it is. Seeing Christ as everything, yourself as incapable of bridging this gap, and and you're going to trust that He's going to carry you there because you can't walk spiritually. That's the idea. Maybe for a little bit of a corrective to maybe help you think through this a little bit faith doesn't save, Christ saves. And the way to have Him save you is to trust in Him, to depend upon Him. Remember, He's the substitute, the just for the unjust. You're incapable and now you have a substitute to take your place and you're going to rely upon them to do it for you. That's the idea of Christianity. That's the reality of the Gospel. And let me just say one more thing about it i like to say this, and I'll keep saying it over and over again. Salvation most definitely is by works. Not yours, but His. Right? Salvation is by grace alone, yes. Through faith alone, yes. In Christ alone, who didn't just show up and pronounce everything fine. It is a propitiation we read about in Romans chapter 3. It is Christ fulfilling the law. Him doing all of this. He earns salvation for you. And so we value Him and we worship Him for what He did on our behalf. And that's why we do say salvation is not by works. It's through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I know that. Because it's not your works or my works. But it's most definitely based upon His works because we needed someone to satisfy the righteous requirement of God that we couldn't satisfy. Don't be ignorant about these things. Don't be ignorant about gospel things. Ignorance might be bliss when it comes to a lot of other things, but ignorance for Israel meant no salvation ignorance for us when it comes to God and his righteousness and Christ and his righteousness and us in our unrighteousness and the appropriation of righteousness the application of righteousness would be fatal fatal embrace that in your own heart would be my desire and my prayer and then when you open your mouth up to tell others about the good news Make sure you tell them enough of the story so that it actually makes sense and it's actually good news. Please, pray with me if you would. Father, thank you this morning for the privileged opportunity we have to open your word and to spend some time, invest some time wanting to understand it better, wanting to grapple with its meaning and significance. Thank you for Christ who is our righteousness as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He is our righteousness. We cling to Him and to Him alone as believers and we long to tell others about the significance of Christ and the significance of of you and your righteousness. Lord, help us to do it with a, a spirit of joy and thanksgiving and not arrogance and pride. For Christ's glory we pray. Amen.